Hey, I'm back and I'm so happy to be here. I've been trying to get this episode recorded for some time now, but oh God, so much has happened in 2021 and it's really kept me from doing a lot of things I enjoy, including this podcast. Um, it's been really frustrating for me because I've really come to rely on Trapper John as a source of comfort. Uh, recently, just to give you a little background, I got some really bad news about a family member and I was told that they were in intensive care and that it wasn't looking good. And I ended up having to fly out of state a couple of times to be with them. Uh, you know, on the evenings when I was super wiped out from spending the day in ICU, I found myself watching lots and lots of Trapper John. I think that probably sounds counterintuitive because here I was spending all day in a hospital and then going back to the hotel and watching a show that takes place in a hospital. But you know what? It gave me a lot of hope. You know, I ended up randomly picking episodes and many of them felt like rediscoveries. And it was such a pleasure and a real bright spot for me when I was dealing with uh, my family member, who, by the way, is doing a lot better, uh, but they're in a long-term care facility. And so now the regular show and this show might possibly become even more sporadic than it has been. Um, but you know what? I'm soldiering on because I really adore Trapper John and watching one or two episodes a night has got me wanting to talk about it again. But I have to be honest, these next two episodes, which are titled The Surrogate and Whose Little Hero Are You, aren't personal favorites. Uh, maybe it's because I've seen these particular episodes too many times, or maybe it's just because I'm not as drawn to the kid-centric episodes so much, but I found it odd that two episodes about adolescents that are in many ways interchangeable would come back to back. Uh, but you know what? Here we are. At the same time, these entries are absolutely not terrible, uh, but perhaps they're just not for me. I do love a lot of the actors, though, um, who appeared as guest stars in both episodes. And so there's always that to fall back on, which is pretty much what I'm going to talk about here. Uh, but, you know, as for where Trapper John was in the last month of the last decade of 1979, when these two episodes aired, it was still confounding the critics with its popularity. Although a columnist for the Kansas City Times named Steve Nicely was indeed very nice and said the show was continuing to improve with each new airing. And regardless of that, it was hard to deny it was the season's most successful newcomer, coming in at number 16 out of 80 shows and outranking any other series that premiered in 1979. And, you know, there's always been kind of a tension between general audience reception and critics. Um, and guess what? I'm hashtag team trap here because I know where the show is going and how it's going to build on things while throwing us a curveball, right? Every now and again. Yeah, yeah. Hindsight is good, to be honest. But let's just say I'm really looking forward to getting these two out of the way so we can move forward into some shows uh, that I like more. Uh, so let's just get this rolling. I wanted to start this by admitting that I haven't been paying as much attention to the writers of the episodes as I should. These two that I'm discussing today were written by Don Brinkley, who, as you probably know, if you listen to some of the prior episodes, or if you just love the show, um, he was one of the main people behind the series, Trapper John MD. Um, it, this show was actually created uh, by a man named Richard Hooker, but it was developed by Don Brinkley and Frank Glixman, and they tend to get most of the attention for it. Brinkley and Glixman were the main driving force behind Medical Center, which I mentioned in the pilot, and their softer approach to medical drama is stamped all over Trapper John. Um, Don wrote several episodes in the first season, including the pilot, and then he penned a handful of episodes in later seasons, uh, relegating the task to a number of other great writers. 
And while the pilot feels markedly different from the rest of the series so far, uh, Brinkley has been a pretty consistent writer with the tone, and he seems to be finding his footing, um, even if we're yet to get to uh, really know the supporting players like Jackpot and Starch. And of course, Riverside is still being developed, but we're getting there, and that's the exciting part of this first season. There will be some envelope pushing stuff coming up soon too, but for now, it seems like Brinkley and crew are really focused on families in turmoil. One More For My Baby dealt with a single mother who had a teenage son struggling with his alcoholism. Uh, what Are Friends For was centered on a couple worried that they might not be able to adopt. Even Taxi in the Rain was about uh, reuniting a homeless man with his daughter, and Shattered Image looked at the harsh realities of life without a family. And so for The Surrogate and Whose Little Hero Are You, Brinkley presents two stories about dysfunctional single-parent homes where the kids are pretty fed up with their day-to-day -day and resort to drastic measures to get away from their parent. The Surrogate is episode 10 of the series and originally aired on December 23, 1979. Although it's Christmas adjacent, it is not a Christmas episode. And you know what? I'm actually unsure if the series ever did one of those, uh, but here's hoping and I can't wait to come across one if they did. Uh, but the surrogate is actually about a kid named Nick who somehow gets himself impaled uh, and finds himself in the ER of San Francisco Memorial. Before he drifts into unconsciousness, Nick tells the doctors that his father is a man named Wally. Nick, by the way, is played by our favorite Jinx cousin, Robbie Rist, whom I'm assuming audiences recognized at this point as Cousin Oliver from the Brady Bunch. What's that? I certainly am not overreacting. What the devil do you think happened to Bobby when they added Cousin Oliver to the Brady Bunch? Oliver, did you break this vase? No, the floor did. Oh, <laughs> so cute. Hey, everybody, I... Bobby, you get back in the garage. Ow, ah, ah, ow. His quote-unquote dad is played by the great and wonderful Chris Connolly. So Wally, who is this little league coach, shows up at the hospital. He's as loving and as concerned as can be. But he's also feeling kind of helpless. So Wally offers to donate blood to the hospital... And then, of course, his blood work comes back to Starch, and we find out that his blood type means he can't possibly be Nick's dad. So, there's a confrontation. Of a boy who's been missing for over a year now. What are you saying? I'm a kidnapper? Oh, no, wait a minute. Nobody's accusing you. He is accusing me of something. Under the circumstances, you're obligated what to circumstances? notify the police. police Look, it's just a routine I'm get... procedure. I'm getting out of this hospital right now. No, he's too sick for that. He's my kid! I'm doing him what I want. Instead of Wally just saying Nick is adopted, we come to find out that Nick was wandering the streets one night when he met Wally. He told him his parents were dead and he was on his own. So Wally started taking him along the Little League circuit and told everyone he was his nephew. But the two grew closer and Uncle Wally became Dad Wally. Since then, the two have been pretty inseparable. But of course, his parents aren't dead, or at least his mom's not, and now Nick's real mom will have to get involved. So here comes a down-on-her-luck model named Wilma. She's hitting that point in her life where she's about to be aged out of a career and she spends many, many months away from home traveling the world looking for suitable husbands to help her raise her kid. Did you marry that guy? Which one? The Italian guy. No, we're still working on it. You'll like him though, Nick. He's got a villain Capri. Mm -hmm. What's his batting average? What? what you mean to me when the housekeeper called me in France and told me you ran away from home it was like my life ended what I mean, you still have that guy with a villa the other one with a private jet 
Well, for somebody who just had surgery, you throw a pretty mean punch. It's very glamorous, except Nick hates it, of course, and it's given him some serious abandonment issues, as it would. But his mom is being played by Joan Hackett, so maybe I'm on her side. And understandably, she's pretty ticked off. Um, And Wilma and Wally, which sounds like a pilot for a buddy cop series, they instantly clash. Want some coffee? No, thanks. This machine didn't work anyway. I'll be darn, it's working. (laughs) Congratulations. Thanks. Oh, how is he? He's fine. Uh, The repair work took a little longer than we expected, but uh, it went very well. And do you think that... What happened to him? Uh, He was a little more active than he should have been, and he broke his sutures, but we keep him quiet. He'll be all right. Are you Mr. Dobbs? Yes, ma'am. And you? I'm sorry, Mr. Dobbs. This is uh, Mrs. Brent, Nick's mother. Nick's mother? Nick doesn't have a mother. Oh, yes, he does, Mr. Dobbs. I guess I should thank you for taking such good care of him. Curiously Don't enough, I'm really not very grateful. You've kept him away from me for more than a year. Look, lady, I swear to God, I didn't even Do you understand exist. what you've done? Do you realize I could have you arrested for kidnapping? He ran away from you, lady. He said you were dead. He I must have had a good excuse reason. Excuse me. You understand yes, that? Hold, you have hold to it! Wilma certainly has the upper hand, though, and she threatens legal action unless Wally backs off. So, taking a page from Gonzo's playbook, Wally does this weird reverse psychology thing to make Nick hate him. I'm going to tell you the truth. I knew you were kind to me all along. So I was just babysitting where your mother was in Spain. France. Wherever. Look, but your mom's back. You're going to be fine. You don't need me. Yes, I do. Well, I don't need you. Well, you're just pulling a number on me, aren't you? Aren't you, Wally? Let me give you the facts, kid. You got your life. I got mine. Take care of yourself, pal. But Nick doesn't just hate him. He's got these abandonment issues, right? And they they just resurface in a major way. And Nick lays in bed in this kind of very upsetting manner, just staring out a window, not eating, not really speaking. He's just really depressed. And you know what? Robbie Rist actually brings this performance home. That scene is so heartbreaking and well done. In fact, it's so well done, Wilma begs Wally to come back into Nick's life because she fears otherwise her son may die. This is as melodramatic as you might expect, saved by three excellent performances. Connolly, Wrist, and Queen Hackett are wonderful. Despite it being a really over-the-top kind of story, the situation is unusual, and there's poignancy in how both Wally and Wilma love Nick and want to care for him. And he's just a really good kid who's looking for some stability in his life. So both Connolly and Hackett were stalwart, dependable television actors, um, pretty much at the stage of their careers. That's They were known predominantly for television. And in 1979, when The Surrogate originally aired, Connolly appeared in six television projects, four episodics that included The Love Boat and Salvage One. And he also starred in the unsold pilot, The Fantastic Seven, where he plays a stuntman who takes on a dangerous pirate played by Patrick McNee. That's right. I did not stutter. Patrick McNee plays a pirate who kidnaps the leading lady of a film Connolly is working on, and he forms a ragtag team of awesome stunt people to get his actress back. However, no series was to come from this, which is pretty sad. Um, But Connolly also starred in the miniseries Martin Eden in 1979 as well. You know, I only know a little bit about Conley, but I remember reading an interview with him regarding the 1977 Peyton Place reunion telefilm Murder at Peyton Place. 
Connolly ruefully commented that after both Ryan O'Neill and Mia Farrow found film stardom while working on that nighttime soap, many of the other actors, including Connolly, thought they too might find some sort of bigger success for themselves. Ironically, Connolly would play O'Neill's character from Paper Moon in the short-lived TV series spinoff in 1974. The 1930s, a time when it wasn't easy for a couple of travelers to make ends meet. We don't have enough money for a tuna. That is, we're thinking of paying for it. Uh, you got a 10 for another 5. Yes. Yes, sir. You must be about ready to move up into management. Addie and Moe's, all they keep getting is a paper move. Ultimately for Connolly, his success would be found working regularly on television in guest and supporting roles. And I don't think he minded that, but I was under the impression he was hoping for bigger leading man status. And you know what? I think he's really charming. He's definitely ruggedly handsome. And he's a very, very, very good actor. I've always loved watching him on TV. You know, so maybe he didn't get the professional success he desired, but I think he left behind a really impressive legacy. So sadly, Connolly passed away at a pretty young age in 1988. See what happens when a housewife goes to work full time. What's wrong with mom? Mom smash. <laughs> it's a new comedy series starring Joan Hackett and David Grove. I also want to mention Joan Hackett here because she's a very special type of actor to me. To start, she's incredibly quirky and she has this really strange ethereal presence. She was really quietly beautiful. You know, it just kind of snuck up on you. And she was very likable as well. When she's on screen, I can't peel my eyes away from her, you know, but I'm used to her playing more oddball type characters. So I was pretty surprised by how well she fit into this role of a loving but flawed mother. She gives the role a lot of conviction. And while I think we're supposed to feel more for Wally, who is this kind of good Samaritan who needs Nick as much as Nick needs him, Hackett brings something really interesting to Wilma. She loves her son. She's really trying. Um, so when she shows up at Connolly's pitching mound to beg Wally to come back to Nick, you know for the character her concern comes from the heart. So Wally and Wilma are just two really good people trying to help a kid they both love. Like Connolly, Hackett also died very young in 1983. And to this day, I think often of all the wonderful roles we'll never get to see her in, and it's been a real loss for me. But it was great to see her and Connolly square off in the surrogate. Um, we really needed both of them and more things. So, you know, in this respect, I think the surrogate does everything right. And I appreciate how three incredible, reliable actors turn a ho-hum kind of story into something with a bit more weight. The B story is a light one, but it's one that takes up a substantial amount of time in this episode. So Gonzo is treating a sheik, played by Albert Paulson. The sheik doesn't know how to repay Gonzo for all of the medical work he's done that's helped him, so he gifts him one of his daughters, played by a then-unknown Kim Cattrall. Her character is named Aaliyah, and she's from the Middle East but grew up in the States and is attending Berkeley. She is very much her own woman at this point, being completely grown up, and she's in love with a man named Herbie, played by Rob Haas. Well, I met this guy at Berkeley. I love him very much. He's studying nutrition and he's working at Anna's Nirvana. Anna's Nirvana? Anna's Nirvana. It's a health food store near Golden Gate Park. Yeah. My father's never met him, but he hates him. Why? Because Herbie's not one of us. 
He doesn't dig all that old traditional stuff my father hangs on to. I think that that's the reason behind this marriage thing. My father is a very devious man, and he'd do anything to break up my affair with Herbie. Well, can't we reason with the Sheik? Just tell him how we feel? Oh, no, no, you can't do that. He'd start a lot of trouble for you, and he'd send me home and put me to work on a pipeline or something. Can Gonzo get the Sheik to understand that you can't just give your daughter away and that she's allowed to spend the rest of her life eating sprouts with Herbie? Well, yeah, of course she can. And let's be clear, this is a B story that is racked with stereotypes, much like the gypsy story we talked about earlier, and I'm forgetting which episode it is, but it's in one of the first few episodes. Um, I imagine these kind of stereotypes would not float on television today. But ultimately, it's a pretty fun story. And Control is, as you might expect, very good in the part. Um, it's reminding me a lot of seeing Shelley Long in the Shattered Image episode. Although I'd say Long's role in that episode has a lot more depth. But Control is really good here. You can't deny it. She'll make one more appearance on Trapper John, so more on her later. The surrogate was directed by Alex March. Uh, March also directed the pilot for House Calls, which stars the original Trapper John, of course, Wayne Rogers, and he'd previously directed Connolly in an episode of Paper Moon. He would direct three episodes of Trapper John, and this was his first one. So in Whose Little Hero Are You, we've got basically the same kid struggles with parent scenario, but with a gender switch. This episode begins with Dr. Riverside and Trapper heading out to a much needed day of rest with a golf game. On their way to the course, they find a young woman, possibly 12 or 13, laying on the side of the road. She's been in an accident and isn't breathing. So using their medical bag of tricks, the two doctors attempt to open up a breathing passage with a syringe, but the needle is too narrow and she's still in danger. I just wanted to interject here that we saw something similar to this on a 1976 MASH episode titled Mulcahy's War, where the good priest has to do some guerrilla doctor work and ends up opening up a soldier's breathing passage with, I think it was a ballpoint pen. However, Trap and Riverside don't seem to have that around, so they quickly create a device that involves Riverside's car vacuum, I guess as a way to suck out what's ever keeping the breathing passage blocked. It's crude, uh, but it gets the girl in a better spot to be transported to the hospital. Gonzo checks in on her after her procedure and the two form a very strong bond. Her name is Amy and she's played by the completely adorable Katie Kurtzman. Um, she asks him if he's in need of a daughter and of course he tells her that he's open for propositions. It's about time you woke up. I've been waiting around all night for you. Where'd the thing come from? Your date, David Bowie. Come on, I was just doing a number on you. I know. It was really Mick Jagger, right? Here, this thing's getting heavy. Hey, thanks. You know something? I've never owned one of these things. Not even when I was a kid. Amy, we're going to have to let your parents know that you're here and that you're okay. Now, where do I find them? Well, my mother's dead. She was on a big yacht near St. Tropez. You know where that is? Mm -hmm. Well... There was a big storm. One of them French dudes fell overboard. She jumped in after him. I'm sorry. It's okay. I didn't like her anyway. And what about your father? Out of town. Africa, I think. Uh, 
big top secret mission. He works for the State Department. Then Amy's real dad shows up, and you get why she's looking for a new father. Talk about a trash fire. His name is PK, and he's almost as loud and as obnoxious as a suit. He comes barreling into the hospital, then he plays it cool with the doctors as he asks about Amy. Hiya, Princess. I've been worried sick about you. Yeah. Hi, PK. Would you believe it? I bought you some flowers, a dozen long stem roses, and like a real chump, I left them in a taxi. You used that same line when I had my tonsils out. If you stayed out of hospitals, I wouldn't run out of excuses. Are you hurting very much, baby? I'm okay. Yeah? Well, you made the newspapers. Take a look. This is gonna cost us a potful, isn't it? Mm, yeah, but I'll work something out with him. What do you mean, work something out? Just the other day, you told me we were loaded. You made a big... Oh, no, PK, not again. It's no big deal. I had a few bills that were a little more pressing, so, uh... Yeah, like the fifth race at Bay Meadows. You get the impression that he missed a few semesters of charm school. Because of the crazy antics of Riverside and Trap, Stanley is getting some heavy press for the makeshift medical care that saved Amy's life. Everyone basically wants a piece of Riverside. Hollywood Squares, The Tonight Show, Mike Douglas, you name it. And it's not hard to imagine that Riverside might sort of be really digging the attention. That is until PK starts to see dollar signs in his eyes and sues Riverside, even though his quick thinking saved Amy's life. And of course, this gives Riverside the vapors. It's all your fault, John. You know that? It's all your fault. If you hadn't insisted on our stopping at that accident. Stanley, you would have stopped anyway as soon as you saw that little girl lying there. I won't do it again. Not ever. I'm not lifting a finger to help anyone ever again unless there's a signed consent form and a legal... Oh, my God, John, two million dollars. I know, Stanley, it's rough. But we got a terrific legal staff here, and they'll treat it for exactly what it is, a sleazy form of harassment. I remember when Phil Crenshaw was sued. Remember that? That was just a form of harassment. That's all you remember that? A really cheap shot. And Crenshaw won? Yeah, he won the case. And he lost his practice. His insurance rates went sky high. His patients were afraid of him. His office was empty. He was ruined. I'll be ruined. Easy, Stanley. All those years of school, internship, residency, my membership at the country club, my father. Oh, my God, my father. How can I face him? What do we say? Slow down, Stanley. Now, look, you got the Good Samaritan Act on your side and some of the best legal brains in the business working on it. Now, you're going to knuckle under to a money-grubbing creep like P.K. O'Keefe. Meanwhile, Amy's obsession over Gonzo begins to set off some serious alarms for Jackpot, who tells Gonzo that he needs to put a stop to her growing emotions before they get out of hand. Hey, what's wrong? You know what's wrong? Your father is suing the doctor who saved your life for two million dollars. Oh, no. PK would never do that. You didn't know about it? No. I swear I didn't. You're doubting me. How can you do that? That's like doubting your own daughter. You're not my daughter, Amy. But I could be. Didn't you ask me the other day if I was available? Well, I'm available. Amy, listen. I can move in with you right now. Cook all your meals. I make terrific sandwiches. Y you like peanut butter? Salami. I could even make egg sandwiches. Amy, would you shut up and listen to me for a minute? 
And I guess Gonzo decides to go for the gold because he walks into her room and kind of destroys her. For some reason, he makes her feel somewhat responsible for her father's lawsuit. So, of course, Amy's injury begins to worsen and there's some internal bleeding and Trapper has to use his own con game to get PK to reconsider the suit. Can he convince PK to give up the con and come back to his daughter? Yeah, he can. So usually when I do these two first, I find there's one episode I prefer more than the other one. But I would say that I both enjoy and have issues with the surrogate and who's little hero are you in equal measures. Neither is necessarily gripping television, but both feature wonderful actors and both at least try to make the premises interesting, if not completely intriguing um, or ultimately satisfying. Again, what I like about this entry is the actors. Both Kurtzman and Robbie Riss are likable, familiar faces, and they're both very good young actors. Kurtzman in particular is really likable. Amy's into David Bowie. She tells these wonderful, fantastic stories about her life. She's also a very unhappy kid, and I think the actress really conveys that very well. But I think this episode belongs to Alan Feinstein, who plays PK, her father. He's a sleazy con man who probably never worked an honest day in his life, and yet I think he does care for his kid. That he makes his turnaround so quickly feels too pat, but I love watching the actor swagger turn to fatherly concern. He's very good in a part that could have gone a number of ways. Interestingly enough, or maybe interesting to me because I'm a huge TV movie lover, I came to know Feinstein from the 1979 TV movie The Two Worlds of Jenny Logan. Of course, that premiered the same year this episode aired. But the actor has been in a thousand things, including everything from the streets of San Francisco to Nip Tuck. Uh, but he was kind of a fixture of soaps during this era. Some of his most popular roles came from Knott's Landing, Falcon Crest, Love of Life, Edge of Night, and General Hospital. He didn't do a lot of TV movies, but he was always memorable when I did see him. Aside from Jenny Logan, Feinstein also played the gay football player in Alexander the Other Side of Dawn. And that's a really incredible part, by the way. Likewise, although much younger, Kurtzman was a regular on television at this point, too. In 1979 alone, she was in a number of things. Like Connolly, she appeared on an episode of The Love Boat, and she could also be seen in Hawaii Five-0 and that amazing TV movie Diary of a Teenage Hitchhiker. Unfortunately, both she and Feinstein seem to have retired from film and television. Whose Little Hero Are You was directed by Robert Douglas. Douglas directed a handful of episodes of Medical Center and would direct two episodes of House Calls. But he was probably best known as a suave, handsome actor from the classic days of film. You might recognize him best for his stairwell sword fight with Errol Flynn in The Adventures of Don Juan. Douglas was English-born. He worked in theater. Uh, he worked with the likes of Laurence Olivier and Jessica Tandy. And then he moved to Hollywood and appeared in a number of films, including The Fountainhead, before he decided to try his hand at directing. The first production he worked on was uh, titled Ponder Heart, and it played on Broadway. And the star of the play was David Wayne, who, of course, also starred in House Calls, right? Are we getting a little incestuous here with all our connections? We might be. He soon moved over to directing TV, and I guess the thing that stands out to me most is that he directed the Columbo episode Old Fashioned Murder, which starred Joyce Van Patten and Celeste Holm, who Trapcast listeners might recognize from the episode Shattered Image. But Douglas directed everything from Maverick to Surfside 6 to Beretta to Fame, and this was the first of four episodes he did for the series. <laughs> So here we are. We're drawn to a close, but don't let me go without my trap fact. Did you know Gregory Harrison's father and grandfather worked in the glass bottom boat business on Catalina Island, and Harrison said he assumed he'd probably take over at some point. 
However, while working as a bouncer in a bar, he convinced the manager to let him and other employees do a show for the patrons. One night, Jason Robards actually came in and he told Harrison that if he was willing to study and work hard, he could very well become a successful actor in his own right. Robards really knew his stuff. Next on Trapper John. Next up on the Trapcast is Boom and Have You Hugged Your Nurse Lately, which will give us a better look at Brancusi, and I'm super into it. Thanks so much for listening. Thank <laughs> you.